Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com. You know, no reaction whatsoever. Is that within the realm of normal? Despite the fact that some people had symptoms and some people did not, uh, we still saw the 95-94% efficacy. He says, what is the best vaccine to have? If people do have a choice beyond just the choice of, hey, go get vaccinated, would you recommend one of these over the others? I'd say whatever vaccine is available to you the earliest (laughs) is the best one for you. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. It's no exaggeration to say that some of us have been thinking about vaccines a lot lately. Where to get them, when to get them, how getting one could change your life. Now maybe you've gotten one and you're still thinking about it. Is the fact you're tired today related to the vaccine? And when is it fully effective anyway? We all have questions. So who better to join us today than a vaccine expert? Dr. Dan Hoft is an infectious disease physician at St. Louis University's Center for Vaccine Development. That is one of just 10 elite vaccine treatment and evaluation units in the nation, funded by the National Institutes of Health. And he joins us today to answer my questions and yours. So Dr. Hoft, welcome. Thank you very much, Sarah. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Hoft, I understand that this uh, Center for Vaccine Development at SLU ran clinical trials for both Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. What goes into that? A lot of work. Uh, we here at St. Louis University have been a vaccine center for almost 30 years now. We've conducted about 300 vaccine trials um, in that time. We brought in uh, uh, lots of uh, NIH awards to fund the work. Um, And we do work um, that includes phase one through phase three trials, so clinical trials, predominantly of new vaccines um, through the VTEU, which is about half of the funding uh, that we receive for doing vaccine-related research. Okay. So this is some really important work. Lately, it's been such high-profile work. I'm wondering how this compares to some of these other vaccine trials that, that you've handled. Has there ever been one that had this degree of anticipation around it? Well, um, there have been a lot of other uh, trials that we have conducted that have needed to be urgently done Hmm. uh, because of uh, other outbreaks, um, worries about um, bioweapons being released, and we need vaccines to protect them. So we're used to needing to um, drop what we're doing, so to speak, uh, when a major new problem comes along that needs to be dealt with. But this one is different. Um, This one is the biggest um, world pandemic that we have seen in our lifetimes that we've seen in 100 years. Mm -hmm. 
So it is a, a, a major uh, change. Uh, it ca has caused a lot of major changes to the way we do business. I mean, first off, uh, for the last year, it's been the major thing we have done. Hmm. Um, so it's been a persistent um, uh, project uh, that includes many uh, projects within the major project uh, and for a disease that we didn't even know about <laughs> before mm -hmm. uh, January uh, of last year. And this one feels like this this vaccine process has been such a big success. Have, have you had any where you get into this and, and you feel like, you know, this is going to be the vaccine, this is going to work, and it ends up not achieving this level? It, it ends up not being something that works at all. Yes, many times I've been part of uh, many attempts to develop new vaccines that either failed before they ever uh, made it into human trials, say in the what we call preclinical realm of research, hmm. where we're looking at can a vaccine potentially be useful for a specific infectious disease. Um, so yes, we've we've had things that needed to be stopped in their tracks because of they just couldn't work. We couldn't develop enough data to support going into humans. We've had vaccines that in human trials early on during the phase one, we found safety signals and the vaccines were scrapped. Hmm. So it is amazing. It's spectacular what has happened. You say with, a, a safety uh, signal. What is something where you might end up scrapping a, a vaccine trial? Well, in phase one, which are the first set of clinical trials that you do to test safety and not efficacy yet, but immunogenicity, um, in, in phase one, you only recruit small numbers of people. Mm -hmm. And if you see a significant side effect when you're only enrolling a small number of people, that strongly suggests that it's going to be a common side effect. Mm. So in, in what I was particularly referring to was a, a vaccine that was associated with the shingles uh, outbreaking. Mm. Uh, two months after vaccination, we don't know all the reasons why that happened, but it was an experimental vaccine that was uh, being developed for um, tuberculosis to try to prevent uh, TB disease and infection. Mm. And it looked very promising in the preclinical realm. And in the human trials, it actually induced a very strong immune response. But two out of eight people in the highest dose group of the vaccine, which we were thinking would have been the right dose to use uh, in the progression of the clinical trials, was associated. So two out of eight developed mm -hmm. shingles two months after vaccination. Mm -hmm. That is 25% or a quarter of the volunteers. That is uh, something that uh, indicates a, pretty, a very high frequency mm -hmm. of an adverse event. So that vaccine did not progress beyond that. Hmm. But these COVID-19 vaccines, they didn't just start cold um, back in January of, of um, last year. Um, they were um, based upon a lot of uh, work on other pathogens that are related uh, that have been going on for uh, 15 to 20 years before this COVID-19 outbreak. So we benefited 
a lot from that. Um, we knew that other coronaviruses uh, utilized the spike protein uh, to bind to uh, cells in people to initiate infection. So we already suspected that, more or less knew that that was how uh, SARS-CoV-2 would also be acting. So we mm -hmm. could very quickly hone in on what the actual most important antigen that was to use to try to induce the neutralizing antibody responses. There was also a lot of work done over 20 years before this outbreak looking at nucleic acid vaccines. Um, initially, it was DNA vaccines that looked very promising, but they didn't translate well into humans. They worked very well in mice, but that's not where we want to protect people. We need <laughs> yeah. to get them to work. In, Much less in, of a priority to get those mice inoculated. <laughs> yes. Um, um, so that was a disappointment for um, human vaccinologists that they didn't work so well because there are a lot of features that were advantageous, such as being very stable, easy to make, uh, cheap. Mm. Um, but they again, like I said, didn't translate into humans well. The mRNA vaccines, on the other hand, um, became uh, of interest because of those problems with the DNA vaccines. And people had already made vaccines with RNA, um, mostly in the preclinical realm, so studies in animals. But but also there had been some human trials. So it was just at the right timing for this technology be tested. And it had even more uh, benefits than the DNA vaccines for rapid rollout. Hmm. Um, so those, probably those two things um, were the background for how we could go so fast with developing vaccines for COVID-19, uh, that we had all this pre-existing research that told us a lot about coronaviruses and told us a lot about new platforms for vaccine development. Hmm. But also, just the world was threatened. It still is. Um, but with the whole world being threatened, um, people have uh, stood up and uh, banded together. And governments have spent incredible amounts of funding that have made it possible to do things like uh, decrease the risk for industry, you know, companies that make vaccines, they would be very hesitant, uh, usually, to spend a lot of time, pretty much all their time, mm -hmm. on one vaccine program, unless there was some de-risking, so to speak. And the $10 billion, for example, that uh, the U.S. government uh, provided for the warp speed um, uh, project uh, was unprecedented in terms of providing funding to de-risk companies and make all of this happen very fast. Another thing is that um, this became the number one priority, and that's for everyone, including the regulatory authorities. They are doing everything they can to, when it's related to COVID, that's what they're focusing on. That has to have the shortest timeline. And 
there's been no cutting of corners mm-hmm. on terms of safety, but uh, we used to and normally would do all of the steps from, I won't break it down in, in, to the minutia, but from the preclinical realm before you get to humans. And then in, from phase one through phase two, more subjects. Um, phase three, even more subjects to really look at rare safety events as well as um, efficacy. Does it work? Uh, does the vaccine work? All of those could be overlapped in this process because of the perceived uh, emergency to get this work underway. Hmm. So all of that was critically important for this spectacular success of just getting vaccines designed, tested in animals, and into uh, phase one through phase three. What's even more spectacular is the first two hit uh, 94, 95% protection levels, which um, is not that common, certainly for your first or second attempt. Yeah, so, I mean, they, these seem like just um, just extraordinary feats of science, um, both that, that so many um, have been able to get to this point so quickly, um, and also these, these rights that they're showing here. I mean, is, is this almost a surprise even within your world? Yes. We did not anticipate that the first vaccines would have such, as I've said a couple times now, spectacular success. Hmm. Uh, We're very happy about it. (laughs) Uh, We are too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's great for the whole world. Um, uh, But... um, yeah, it, it's and it's based upon a lot of work that happened before we ever heard of SARS-CoV-2, but there still were major risks to these vaccines not working. Yeah. So everybody banded together, uh, put their best foot forward, uh, best feet forward, um, and uh, committed to uh, focusing on this world problem. Um, and I'm uh, I'm in awe of how much people uh, came together for this effort. We need to keep doing that. (laughs) We need to keep uh, working together uh, to um, have the best impact on overcoming this pandemic for the long term. And uh, we are going to talk to people with their questions in hopes of getting them on board for what this is all going to take, because as you say, we need to continue to come together on this one. And we will be back shortly to continue this conversation with Dr. Dan Hoft. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. Today we are talking vaccines with Dr. Dan Hoft. He's an infectious disease physician at St. Louis University's Center for Vaccine Development. Dr. Hoft, I think let's get right at it. We have a lot of people with questions for you, and I want to um, jump right in. So let's go to the phone lines. Jim is calling from Bridgeton. Um, Jim, hi. You're on St. Louis on the air. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you for taking my call. 
I have a real quick comment and then a, a, a question for your guest. Uh, I was in the Wash. I'm in the Wash U vaccine trial, and it's been an excellent experience. I was unblinded last week and got the J and J vaccine shot because I was in the placebo group. Good for There's you. Still trials. There's still trials going on, so I would urge anyone uh, to get up off the couch and sign up for a trial. It's a very enlightening and interesting experience. Well, that's great to hear. And and Jim, you said you also had a question. Yes. Last uh, last uh, spring, I got the first shot of the Shingrix two-part shingles vaccine. And then later on in the year, I had to get the second part. And at the same time, the flu vaccine had just come out. So foolishly, I said, oh, give me a shot in each arm. So I get them both at the same time. And they said, well, we don't recommend it. And I insisted. I said, really, it would help me out a lot with my schedule. I'm busy and all that. And that was 10 o'clock in the morning. By 6 o'clock in the evening, I was shivering under a blanket on my couch. And by midnight, I was vomiting. And the next day, I felt like nine yards of death. And a day later, I was fine. But I was just curious if if your guest could comment on why getting two vaccines together could have caused such a reaction. Jim, thank you for that. And I think the moral of the story is when they tell you not to do something, maybe you should listen. But uh, Dr. Hoft, I'll I'll let you address that. It's not a good idea. (laughs) Well, first off, the Shingrix vaccine is more reactogenic than most of the vaccines that we use. It was demonstrated to be safe and tolerable, but it does usually cause some more um, arm pain uh, or other associated symptoms. Uh, When you get multiple vaccinations at once, it's... um, uh, it's doubly challenging your immune response. Most of the side effects that normally happen with the vaccine are actually a sign that the vaccine is working. It's inducing an immune response. You have a little bit of inflammatory response that can cause some symptoms, but it lasts just for a short period of time, usually less than a day or a couple days. Um, if you get two vaccines, of course, then it's potentially double trouble, Hmm. and you could be uh, inducing too much of the inflammatory response, which may have um, increased your risks of having the symptoms that you had. Hmm. Well, Jim, thank you for that call and also for touting the vaccine trials there. We do want to mention if anyone is interested in enrolling in a vaccine trial or learning more about the SLU Center for Vaccine Development, you can visit vaccine.slu.edu and complete the questionnaire there. Again, that's vaccine.slu.edu. You can also call 314-977-6333. Again, that's 314-977-6333. Let's go back to the phone lines. John, is calling from St. Louis with, I think, a very relevant question here. Uh, John, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi there. Thanks for taking the call. So perhaps a naive question. Uh, as you had just said, uh, if, if you get a reaction that just shows your system's antibodies are kicking in, and that's a good sign. Well, I had uh, vaccine number one of Pfizer and vaccine number two of Pfizer, and, you know, no reaction whatsoever, hmm. other than it felt like somebody poked me in the arm with a needle. And I was just curious, is that a certainly within the realm of normal, or does that mean your body's not activating as much as it should? John, that's a, that's a great question. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Hoft? Yeah, that is a good question. But basically, there's a wide range of individual responses to vaccines. You don't have to have side effects to get a good response from a vaccine. 
in the COVID-19 vaccine trials that we've conducted here at, at St. Louis University, we've seen the same range of uh, variability from one individual to the next. But despite the fact that some people had symptoms and some people did not, uh, we still saw the 95, 94% efficacy. So we know that a lot of people that didn't have symptoms also responded well to the vaccines. Hmm. So people shouldn't worry about that. They shouldn't read too much into that. No. Okay. Well, we want to let you know our phone lines are open, 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. We actually have a voicemail uh, that someone left for us, um, hoping we could address it to you. So let's go to Rosenda, uh, who was calling from Dupo, Illinois. I would like to hear what the guest has to say about COVID arm. I developed the small rash a day after the second dose of the vaccine, and I'm interested to hear what the guest will say. And that again is from Rosenda. Dr. Hoft, um, COVID arm, I understand that's a rash. What causes that? Well, it's an inflammatory response also. We have seen that rarely in um, subjects in the trials, and it's also being reported outside of the trials as the, the vaccines are being rolled out under the emergency use authorization. We don't know exactly what causes it, but um, it has not led to any major um, chronic problems. Um, I I would assume that your guest uh, had uh, a rash like that that uh, persisted for maybe a few days or maybe a little bit longer, but eventually has cleared Mm -hmm. because that's what we have seen with um, many other people that um, have described this. We haven't seen that many here at St. Louis University, but, but we are engaged with a network that's including up to 100 sites for each vaccine trial. So we have a lot of experience across the whole network. Um, So those reactions have been seen, but they have not been associated with either any long-term significant problem or um, any uh, uh, indication that there's an extra benefit or not as good of a response. So Um, It's just something that we've seen. Dr. Hoft, one thing I keep hearing is that everybody who's getting that that COVID arm and that people who frankly seem to be having the most intense reactions to the vaccination process are all people getting the Moderna one. Um, Is there any reason why one vaccine would be more likely to give that or, or give people a stronger physical reaction than the others? Well, that's uh, funny that you say that, uh, Sarah. I I have seen um, not directly myself by because we haven't studied all the vaccines, but but I certainly have seen similar reactogenicity being reported for both Moderna and the Pfizer mm. vaccine. So, but there is possibility that uh, the vaccines are not identical. Uh, the um, R- those two RNA vaccines have slightly different sequences they're using for the vector itself, the delivery part of the RNA, and the lipid uh, components that are the lipid nano caps uh, uh, encapsulating part, the surface basically of the vaccine, um, are a little bit different from one vaccine to another. Hmm. So it's possible that somebody could have a different allergic response, for example, to one of the unique components, and that could be different between the vaccines. But we haven't seen an overall um, 
major uh, difference between. Hmm. Well, that actually leads right into a question that we got, I believe, via Facebook. This is from John. Um, He says, what is the best vaccine to have? If people do Mm -hmm. have a choice beyond just the choice of, hey, go get vaccinated, would you recommend Mm -hmm. one of these over the others? I'd say whatever vaccine is available to you the earliest (laughs) is the best one for you. So because they all, they all are shown to be safe, they all work, and they, they the earlier we get people vaccinated, the better the earlier we can get back to sort of normal life and economic uh, uh, conditions. So um, whatever's available, go for it. So I got to ask a follow-up question there. There's been a, a source of great controversy between my husband and myself. He is convinced that the J&J vaccine does not work as well as the other two. And I have tried to argue with him that I feel like there's a good body of evidence that that's not necessarily the case. Will you help settle this marital mm-hmm. dispute here? <laughs> no, well, Sarah, that's risky for me to try. <laughs> I might cut your um, mic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, oh, well, maybe I just uh, shouldn't really go there. But the, the the best answer I probably can give is that some of the numbers may make it look like some of the vaccines might not work quite as well. But the uh, pandemic itself has been changing since we've been doing uh, the vaccine trials. The virus is mutating and we've seen new viral variants uh, emerging from South Africa, uh, UK, Brazil, New York City, California um, that are concerning because Mm -hmm. they are mutating in a way that they could potentially escape the immune responses that we're inducing with vaccines. But to your point, the mRNA vaccines that had a higher overall efficacy were tested early before there were any variants. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty much all in, in the U.S., not, not all, but more so. Um, and whereas uh, with the J&J, that got a little later start and uh, was heavily being tested in places like South Africa. So it may have been a bigger challenge for the vaccine, even if it induced the strongest, just as strong an immune response as the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines because of these new viral uh, variants that are uh, popping up. And that's maybe a good segue for me, if you'll uh, allow me, uh, to just say that we are starting a new trial here at St. Louis University, in fact, uh, just got activated this past Thursday evening, Mm. and we just had our first screen yesterday. We're working with a company called Gritstone Oncology, uh, and the NIH, our our VTEU network, is, is funding this trial. Basically, it's a combination of vaccines. It's a, an adenovirus vaccine like the J&J, and it's a, a self-amplifying um, mRNA vaccine uh, like the uh, Moderna vaccine, used in a prime boost combination and taking parts uh, from, of, of the virus from places other than that receptor binding domain that's key for the neutralizing antibodies to target and prevent the virus from infecting. Hmm. In addition, this trial is not only trying to induce neutralizing antibodies, which are key, but 
it's also trying to induce a much better T-cell response, which is the other part of the immune response that can protect us by not making antibodies, but by recognizing an infected cell and eliminating that infected cell before it makes new viral particles. Hmm. So that is like a one-two punch. You got two immune responses for one, and that might work better. In addition, there are sequences from all across the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and that uh, helps protect against immune escape that we're worried about from these variants because it's almost impossible for a virus uh, to uh, mutate in many places all at once hmm. to cause all of the parts of the vaccine to no longer induce a protective immune response. Hmm. So this is a trial we've started. If people are interested, we're screening for it right now. Um, and I'd urge them to call uh, the 977-6333 number that you already mentioned. Okay. We'll also make sure to get that on our website um, in hopes of getting more people signed up for that. That seems so hopeful. We do have a ton of people with questions. Um, let's get back to the phone lines. Carlotta is calling from Ferguson. Um, Carlotta, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi. I actually had a couple of questions. Um, first of all, I had the Pfizer vaccine, and I experienced some uh, pretty uh, major uh, reaction after my first shot, but I also had had COVID, and I wondered if it's common for people to experience more of a reaction after their first shot if they've had COVID. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Hoff? That is a great Yes, that's a very good question. Actually, yes, there are studies now that show, first, that it's safe um, to have had COVID-19 in the past and then get vaccinated, but that you actually benefit from having had the infection and getting over it because you have a starting point for your immune response. Hmm. The first dose of the vaccine will be able to induce um, a memory response, we call it, that's recalled from what was primed by the infection itself. And that can result in a more rapid and higher level of uh, immunity that can protect you. So um, that is probably why you had a worse reaction than most uh, during the first, uh, your first vaccination. Um, but it also is probably an indication, and like I said before, that you got an even stronger immune response than most people would to the first vaccination. So that is some good news. Carlotta, you said you had a second question there? Yeah, uh, that is good news, actually. Um, yeah, and the other thing is I tuned in just as you were mentioning something about shingles, and I think you were saying that some people were reporting shingles from the vaccine. I don't know if that's what you were saying. Um, but I Googled it and discovered I had shingles shortly before I uh, had my positive COVID test. And I mm -hmm. discovered that there is some connection between shingles being an indicator maybe of COVID. Something, um, about Carlotta, that? thank you for that. And I would want to make sure we, we don't get any um, false information out there that uh, yes. the shingle thing was not related to what we were talking about with the COVID-19 no, vaccine. That was related to a tuberculosis vaccine that we were testing some years ago. Nothing to do with COVID-19. Sorry to have confused you about that. Um, but there is um, 
likelihood uh, that uh, the indifferent, inf- when we know in, for some facts that different infections can interact with each other, if you have, say, a chronic infection that reactivates like um, uh, the varicella uh, virus and causing the, the shingles, um, that can cause perturbations or just changes or t- uh, twitches or whatever you want to call it of the immune response that can cause other susceptibilities or, or trigger the awakening up of a latent organism in your body. Um, don't know if that's really what happened to you, but there's certainly, it's a possibility. Okay. Well, thank you for that phone call, Carlotta. We also got a tweet from Carmen. Uh, This is a question I've never thought of. Why is the same amount of the dose given to people of all sizes and weight? Mm -hmm. Well, um, it's the, you're talking about the RNA vaccines Mm -hmm. or are you talking about all of the vaccines? Uh, Uh, Good. Let's talk about the RNA vaccine (laughs) since we only have about a minute here to go. (laughs) Okay. Well, um, it, it, you're not actually inducing the immune response directly with the RNA. The RNA is made into protein by your own body's cells. Hmm. And it's the protein that's made that stimulates the immune response. So there's somewhat of a relationship between the amount of RNA you give and the amount of antigen that's made, but it's not always kind of a one-to-one relationship. Hmm. Um, so it, that can maybe help explain why the, the same dose can work. That in, is the, the in, perfect 30-second answer to that question, which is unfortunately all we had and so all we need. But um, Dr. Dan Hoft, you've been great about answering these questions today. I want to thank you so much for, for joining us and being ready for anything that came at you. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Sarah. I uh, enjoyed being here and appreciate people's interest. And we do want to remind people, if you're interested in being a part of that trial, that's now beginning at SLU. We'll get that information on our website. We'll also get that out on Twitter. That's at STL on air. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.